to episode 1.5 of Radio vs. the Martians. This is one of our special mini-episodes where we answer your listener feedback and announce the new panel episode topic. This is Mike Gillis. And this is Casey Doran. And we're going to start this thing off with the biggest news in nerd culture, and that is the takeover by director J.J. Abrams of Star Wars. He now has a near total monopoly on American science fiction. As our friend Sam Mulvey says, all both of them. <laughs> so what do you think about that, Casey? You know, our listeners have spoken up because this, uh, this is obviously the biggest news to happen to Star Wars since, I, I don't know, maybe since George Lucas raped people's childhood. I don't, I don't know. But our our friend Matt Povey says lens flare, lens flare everywhere. Which I agree, I mean I agree. I, there was an awful lot of lens flare in all of the prequels too. So he's he's really inculcating himself into a visual space that he'll work quite nicely. Then J.J. <laughs> <laughs> Abrams loves lens flare. Yes, yes. He will intentionally just blare everything. Even though they have backlit screens on the bridge of the Enterprise, they still have lamps because it gives you extra flair. And even the comic book that is adapted from the J.J. Abrams universe Star Trek has lens flares put directly into it. Well, you know, I, I was hearing about this, and actually it was one point in time before... I saw a screening what J.J. Abrams was leading on the Paramount for Mission Impossible 3, and he really does want to be regarded as the next Steven Spielberg. And, you know, if you watched Super 8, uh, I don't know, Mike, have you seen Super 8? I have. Oh, it's an intentional love letter to those sort of 1980 Spielberg-type movies like E.T. and Jaws. Right. But, I mean, if you even saw Super 8, they had, he had a sort of, like, wink-wink lens flares, it's a magical time, movies are a magical time sort of thing. And so I think he's trying to harken back to the golden golden age of, of Steven Spielberg, and he's trying to be what Steven Spielberg could never be, which is the god of all nerds. Is he going to harken back to the golden age of George Lucas? Do you look at this new project with any sense of optimism? I don't know. I A lot of people have said that Considering that in the run-up of press to 2009, he made the comment that angered a lot of people that said, oh, I was, I never really cared for, for Star Trek when I was growing up. I was into Star Wars anyways. And so I was, so I think, you know, he already has his, his iron grip on the Star Trek franchise. Let him try Star Wars. It can, it really honestly can't be that much worse than George Lucas directing another one. That's my initial feeling of this. Normally when I see a corporate takeover of a property, in this case Star Wars being taken over by Disney, everything I feel is a sense of dread for the artistic side of this. And at this point, with that track record that George Lucas has had over the past 15 years, I can only think that there's only up from here. That I guess my chief worry with with J.J. Uh, Abrams is that so many of the properties that are attributed to him don't really have a signature style to it. That when you watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know you're watching a Quentin Tarantino movie. Sure. When you're watching a Peter Jackson movie, you know you're watching a Peter Jackson movie. Right. But it doesn't really feel like he has a signature style. Even M. Night Shyamalan, who has created some awful, awful shit, <laughs> he still created memorable shit and we're still arguing about george lucas's last three prequels yeah so i wonder if the worst possible outcome couldn't be that these things are as bad as the phantom menace but are forgettable and that's what i'm a little worried uh, about because he's yeah. credited with jj abrams is credited with lost but 
that's really the baby of Damon Lindelof and Carlton Hughes. I mean, he came on and directed a couple episodes. Right, right. So I, I really wonder what it's going to be. And I know that we have some people who are actually feeling a little bit upset about it as well. Raby Jerame on Facebook says, It upsets me to know that Jar Jar Abrams... <laughs> got his hands <laughs> got his hands on another big film i hated everything about star trek 11 aka star trek 90210 <laughs> yes aka stino star trek in name only it had nothing to do with star trek other than using the names and the characters from the original series i like this guy i like raby a lot Congratulations! You, you, he, he coined the phrase that I'm going to refer to Star Trek 11 from time immemorial from here on out. Star Trek 90210. I like it. I know we were really kind of hard on the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, but I don't think any of us actually hate it. Oh no, not not to the degree that he is. I know that there are a lot of people that are upset, and you know there was a lot of things, as you would know if you l- listen to episode one, beaming down to Vietnam four. Uh, you'll you'll get your an earful of. The good and bad things of it, but uh, you know, it it's he says JB says it had nothing to do with Star Trek other than the names of the characters. Well, it had a little bit more. I mean, there was it was thematically, visually, you know, it was very much just an old school Star Trek kind of a story, but just elect electro charged. I wonder though, uh, Star Trek was really a property originally created for television, mm-hmm. so you could do a smaller scale series or an episode that's just about Kirk and Spock dealing with a diplomatic problem on Kirk, some Kirk and planet. Spock having a baby together? Um, that's the <laughs> subject of, of many a slash fiction. I'm sure that story has been written at least 200 times. But you, you could do a smaller scale story um, on the small screen versus the desire to want to do sort of a large scale action flick when you put it on the big screen. Right. And I wonder if that sense of not having the feel of Roddenberry, that sort of optimistic you know, this is a future that we aspire to rather than one that we dread. If that gets lost, not because of the direction they've chosen to take in with J.J. Abrams, but the fact that because it's on a big screen, by definition, it's not allowed to do those small-scale stories that pace out the big ones. And of course you're going to have a story where everything goes bad and people run away from explosions like the Wrath of Khan. But you're also going to have stories where Kirk is just mediating a dispute between two planets. You know, the best of what Roddenberry wanted this world to be. Sure. You had the big stories. You had the ones where somebody's blowing shit up all over the place. But you also had the smaller ones. Now that this is clearly not going to be a television show, this is just going to be a a series of movies, is it sort of hindered by that? It doesn't need to be. I mean, if I think my worst criticism that I could have had for what J.J. Abrams was doing with Star Trek, the worst that I could say is making... Uh, making it an action movie. As I said, taking out everything but the brainstem. You had all the energy of an action movie, and you had sort of the visual and thematic motifs of what the original story was. Um, I don't think there's... It's certainly the worst case is is that no Star Trek... No no new Star Trek is being made. That's the worst possible case. Um, I don't think... I don't think J.J. Abrams... J.J. Abrams deserves praise and blame. I, I have to wonder. I think that this is the same sort of trepidation I have whenever there's a, a reboot of anything. And Star Trek fans haven't had a full reboot before in the same way that I, as a comic book fan, have seen certain characters get rebooted in film right. over and over and over, right. where they do the same thing. They pull out the brainstem and say, okay, let's ignore all of this history that comes with it and create a whole new franchise for this. How many times have I seen Spider-Man or the X-Men or these characters get remade either in the big screen in live action or on the small screen in animation. I've seen this 
dozens of times. Sure. And I think I'm sort of used to it. Changes and stuff don't really bother me as much, because it just seems like this is that era of Star Trek. And maybe we calm down a bit when this era is over and we have a third era of Star Trek. Right. With a new reboot. Star Wars is getting its third era, and... Our listeners, Joseph Potter, he says, I like Abrams' work. He should do a good job. And plus, it's not Michael Bay. You know? <laughs> it's, good. it's good to aim high. No, I mean, I think, there's a, I think there's an air of cautious optimism among people who are devotees of the Star Wars universe. Uh, Timothy Batson said, it could be interesting. He's a talented director. Now let's see if the story and the screenwriters are any good before calling it. And that right there is the uh, raison d'etre of, of new movies. Is uh, Are they going to give it to some kind of hack, or is it going to be rewritten by committee, or is it going to be something where you can pull... So It could be Damon Lindelof and Bob Orsi and uh, Alex Kurtzman. It could be that whole crew. We don't know. Well, actually, we, we do on this front. Do we? Uh, uh, Hired has been the screenwriter for The Empire Strikes Back. I forget his name. I believe it was Kasdan? Lawrence Kasdan? Yeah, I think he was the screenwriter. Exactly, yeah, he has been hired as the screenwriter for Star Wars Episode Seven. What? Yeah. It's news to me. <laughs> yeah, I heard this was actually announced uh, long before J.J. Abrams. Everyone was having their own little discussions and debates about who the director was going to be, who they wanted the director to be. There was a lot of discussion about Joss Whedon, who I think would have been a great choice because... Clearly, Firefly is probably the biggest love letter to the original Star Wars. I guess the oh, Han sure. Solo angle sure. of that more than anything I've seen. What is the original Star Wars? Where it's a bunch of characters um, running around, shooting, blowing things up, exchanging witty banter, and just a general sense of irreverence and fun. And I think that was something that was really lost in the prequels because everyone felt cold and robotic. They didn't have characters like Han and Chewie and Lando, these people who are sort of on the fringes of society and add that kind of, you know, outlaw edge to it, that edge of sarcasm, where everyone just felt like they were just pissy and robotic <laughs> and annoyed with each other. Like, none of these people felt like they were friends. It felt like it was a chore for them to be around each other. Well, I'm recalling a, I'm recalling a something that had came out prior to the release of the new Hobbit movie. Someone, someone anonymous from the set said that Surrey and McClellan actually at one point in time while filming was broke down in tears because unlike the the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy which you know he was on for years I don't know how long they actually took the film in he, they, there was no sets so for the most part it was being done mostly in front of green screens and it was which is incredibly frustrating for an actor um, who is used to be working with other actors and sets to be doing it all naked basically hmm. in front of a green screen and this could you could ascribe part of this to the to the characterization problems and the acting problems with the Star Wars prequels is as the movies went on to 2 and to 3 more of it was less and less sets were built and more of it was done on a green screen and and when actors don't have it it's the sky captain in the world of tomorrow problem i think that there's something that an actor does involuntarily when they're acting in the middle of a desert or they're acting in the middle of a forest or one they're going to sweat more than just the lights of uh the, the the cameras that are on them right they're they're going to be walking through a forest and trying not to trip over roots in the same way their character would be they're going to get dirt on them they're going to get leaves on them and one of the things i loved about the lord of the rings movie was how much they used practical set as much as possible and costumes as much as possible there was a philosophy there that seemed to be at odds with Lucas and what he was doing at the time to 
make this thing feel as grounded in reality. And when you're doing a story with a magic ring and really short people and <laughs> and wizards and and a volcano that you have to you have to trek to with all your uh, you know menagerie of weird magical friends. You're going to need to have that sense of being grounded in reality. You want to see dirt underneath Frodo's fingernails. You want to see a little bit of blood on the sword. You want to see people have uh, dead leaves clinging to the hem of their cloak. Yeah. And that was something that really makes it. Those wide, you know, just panoramic, glorious shots of New Zealand were really a character in that movie, too. They knew that it was important to make that place feel real. And when I look at the Star Wars prequels, all I really see is, I see a Star Wars video game with yeah. live-action actors, and it takes something out of it. And I'm sure that that didn't help their performances, but the script and George Lucas, who is admittedly not a character director, probably didn't help. Well, you know, it's funny. I just watched a movie that I think came out at the, just a couple weeks ago called Side by Side, and uh, it's produced and hosted by Keanu Reeves, and it's a it's sort of a filmmaker's kind of movie because it's a documentary about the transition of of uh, film based uh, movie making to digital. So, in this thing that's been that's been happening on and, and has now come to full fruition um, over the past few years. And of course, Lucas is a big part of this because he was the one who was really the first one to say, I'm going to do a big budget special effects feature and do it all on this big digital camera that he had part of it specially made for him. And Lucas takes himself as being the progenitor of digital, of digital cinema. He's the one who helped film, you know, make ILM. He's the one who, who wanted to, to be the one to, to film the all digital uh, movie with episode two. And so maybe part of it also you could, you could say is that George Lucas got too wrapped up in him trying to prove to the rest of the world that all digital filmmaking uh, and he forgot to, you know, pay attention to the performances and pay attention to whether or not the plots were consistent. Because in the end, I think that you need to do that stuff. That's it's paramount. It may not feel that way now, and just oh, this is a big budget special effects movie. There is going to come a day where those special effects are not impressive anymore. And the, yeah. look at every every big budget movie from way back in the day, even stuff that was considered just mind blowing back in its time. There's going to come a time where that stuff doesn't really impress him, and the movie has to succeed in spite of that stuff. Yeah, I, I will. I will argue that, uh, uh, and we've talked about this before, Mike, you and I, that squibs will always look. Will always, even if it's in the the, the cheapest, crappiest '70s movie, the squibs will always look better than a digital blood splatter. They always will. People are going to react to them in a way that just some guy convulsing around when some guy pretends to shoot him. <laughs> You're going to get a reaction. And the example you gave, which I really like, was that scene in RoboCop where the, is it the ED-209? ED-209, yeah. The uh, giant cop robot that malfunctions in the middle of a boardroom and continues to shoot this guy in pure Paul Verhoeven style for probably about a minute straight with its <laughs> machine guns. Yes. He is just exploding from blood. And like you said, there's something just kind of repulsive and sickening about it. At the same time, it's exciting, and it needs that stickiness to it, that right. dirtiness to it, to really get the full effect. If he was just covered in CGI explosions of blood, it wouldn't get the same effect. True, true. And I'm hoping with the relaunch of these new Star Wars films, that we're going to see something more along those lines. So getting back to this this discussion we had of our first episode. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I uh, we we had very positive reactions. Andrew Sykes uh, simply posted more episodes. Damn you! <laughs> We're working on it, Andrew. <laughs> Kyle Hepworth, who designed our logo uh, for the website, said thought that we were too hard on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Was hoping that someone was going to run to its defense. Now, you're a big fan of Next Gen. How do you feel about the series now, and do you think that we were unfair to it? I think that Sam Mulvey, who was playing the dissenter for this particular... He was playing our Pat Buchanan. Uh, I think that he... Uh, one thing that I didn't want to do was I didn't want to cut him off, and I didn't and I didn't feel like I felt like he was exceptionally hard when he would say things like Data was the worst thing that happened to Star Trek, which I, I think you can make a good case that Data brought an entire generation of people into the Star Trek franchise, um, even if he was kind of sappy sometimes. I, I, I wasn't, of course, going to cut him off because I I felt that his opinion as the dissenter was valuable. But there, and, but he does re- that opinion really does represent the minority, I think, of people who are uh, either Fairweather fans or diehard Trekkies. Is that they think that the Next Generation really was the, the what bridged sort of the goofy or you know late '60s campy show into something that had a bigger universe and had legs. Data was actually a great character. Um, I think that maybe he was perhaps overused. But I think that when you look at some of the episodes like Measure of a Man was one of the best episodes of Star Trek when it's really about an argument about an idea of sentience and what rights a machine should have. And I think that's one of the best episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Here's, though, where I slightly take the middle ground. Looking at both the original series and looking at Next Generation, I think that the original series is actually aged better. I didn't really grab the opportunity to say this during the panel, but I think that the sort of 60s genre of sci-fi, that sort of ambiance, that look, you know, people in miniskirts and laser guns and stuff like that and, and beetle boots, has become sort of a subsection of science fiction. So in a weird way, it's aged better, where there are parts of the next generation which have sort of this almost too safe uh, PC 90s kind of feel to it. And I think that it felt like rather than being a revolutionary show, like we said in the panel, it, it became quite conservative. And it was basically pushing on the barriers that Roddenberry had created, but was very cagey about pushing it any further. And you gave the example of uh, Roddenberry being very coy about including an openly gay character, right. because that really would have been a TV milestone along the same lines of the first interracial kiss between Kirk and Uhura. I honestly don't know. I mean, I grew up during the 90s, and so, um, and of course, I was, what, seven years old when Star Trek The Next Generation came on. My dad, being a big sci-fi junkie, I watched it from the beginning. So it's really hard for me to take, it's really hard for me to get some real distance from it and try to see it. Of course, we can go back now and look and see how the first, especially the first season and the second season, are really just really badly done. And there's parts of that, that have a hokiness level that really gets close to the hokiness of the original series. But I think you could, we could, as, as viewers in the 21st century, Picard is constantly carrying around an iPad. Like, you know, there are, and, uh, and all of the, the, uh, the technology are all touch panels. Basically the kind of touch screens that we, that we have today. That compared to with the super clunkiness, like on original series, how everything's on these little tapes. They're like little cassette tapes and there's flashing lights and stuff. I think that, the TOS is necessarily in a sort of storied and now quaint type of science fiction. I think that 
TNG is is at the front front end of modern science fiction television, and it's just by virtue of the fact that it was kind of one of the prime movers of this next generation you know, no pun intended, of uh, of sci-fi shows, does it seem to look a little more corny than stuff like, say, Battlestar Galactica? I, I think that's a fair comparison. And looking at uh, the discussion we had, I do like the character of Picard. I think he's one of the best parts of Star Trek up there with Spock. And there's, there's some great episodes about Picard. Uh, basically, the, the drumhead, I think, is the name of the the McCarthyism episode. That oh, yeah. Did. You know, interestingly enough, uh, I'll, I'll interrupt you. I was reading somewhere where uh, someone had posted this clip, and both those those episodes of TNG, The Measure of a Man and um, The Drumhead, were reasons why there's a whole generation of kids went to law school. So Interesting. It, it's, it's a kind of a piggyback on that Mr. Scott inspired a lot of kids to become engineers who went into the you know aerospace industry and uh, an engineering industry so too was sort of the effect the cultural effect of the contest of ideas the exposition of ideas that happened in next generation so our good friend uh, Raby Jerame uh, came back and <laughs> yes he did he had a lot to say about our episode <laughs> he said uh, i almost went into nerd rage a few times while listening but it was fun I have only one friend who is into these type of shows, so I don't have these types of discussions in person. I disagreed with some of the things you said about TNG. I strongly disagreed <laughs> with the opinions about Star Trek 90210. That movie, movie was total crap, in my opinion. I doubt that starships had tubes filled with water in the middle of a giant room, <laughs> which seemed to serve no purpose other than to add cheap laughter. Oh, yeah, and they have the Romulans look like neo-Nazis. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm a hardcore fan of the 90s Star Trek, and like what was said in the podcast, people who don't know anything about Star Trek may have liked the movie because they didn't know what Star Trek is supposed to be like, or what it meant to us viewers. In my opinion, they took Star Trek, watered it down, added a bunch of non-Star Trek nonsense to get moviegoers' attention, bad script, cheesy lines, and made money off of it. And I know what that some of those other Star Trek movies were terrible, but Jar Jar Abrams... <laughs> had a chance to do something good with it, and he made it even worse than Star Trek Nemesis, in my opinion. Oh, my opinion. God. <laughs> that, that is a claim that he'd have to back up with some evidence. <laughs> and, and even Raby actually says, I can't believe I found a movie to be worse. <laughs> he did go on to say that he agreed with Sam when it came to Nemesis trying to copy off the death of Spock, but contrary to Sam Mulvey, I love Data. Lastly, a few weeks ago, I watched Battlestar Galactica for the first time. Congratulations. And I was impressed by some of the episodes. I liked the space combat scenes, the way that the Galactica was treated like a ship, since I'm ex-Navy. I liked the occupation episodes and the two-part episodes where Gata led the mutiny. I must have watched that mutiny part over six times in the last few weeks. Yeah, I think that's incredible. And uh, we didn't get to have, we mentioned Galactica on the first podcast. And it might actually, we might actually uh, think about doing that as a topic later. Because it's, uh, it's, such, it's such rich fodder for, uh, for nerddom. But I think Battlestar Galactica was great. It did what I think that the best of a Jar Jar Abrams type Star Trek could do and uh, a Next Generation type Star Trek can do because there was not only really a good tension and action, but there were also incredible, incredible ideas in Battlestar Galactica. And here's something that actually may go against uh, what Raby said about uh, reboots, the idea that you're supposed to keep the brainstem. Battlestar didn't keep the brainstem of the original. The original was essentially just a space romp with people with big hair and short capes and wearing a lot of brown and powder blue. Well, a Star Wars ripoff is what it was. 
it was basically the a schlock TV show from the 1970s that looks like a schlock TV show from the 1970s. Basically, Starsky and Hutch in space. <laughs> yeah, yes. And it had a tone that was totally at odds with the fact that it was about a bunch of people fleeing genocide. So I have to wonder here with the question of reboots, isn't it sometimes better to take the premise and throw everything else out? Is it okay to completely abandon the heart of what the original creator wanted because somebody else can actually do something better with it, like Ronald D. Moore did when he used Battlestar Galactica not to be a fun Star Wars ripoff space romp with big hair, but <laughs> instead to be this exploration of civil liberties and uh, government policy in the aftermath of 9-11. Well, here's the thing, and you and I have talked about this many times, Mike, Hollywood likes to remake things, of course. There's not too many original ideas floating around. But I think, as a rule, as an axiom, we should take it, that we should only remake things that were actually bad. <laughs> that way it's only up from here? Yeah, exactly. Then, then, you, then there will be no disappointment by the fact that you, didn't, that you weren't able to faithfully reproduce the inherent badness of the original. I wonder, though, if anyone wants to see a reboot of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Yes, I do. I do. I'll put my, I'll put my uh, $12 down now for, for the ticket for a reboot Episode One. Only if it has a laugh track. <laughs> oh. It's time for us to announce the second panel episode for Radio vs. the Martians. We'll be recording this sometime in March, hopefully for an April release. Uh, and the topic this time professional wrestling oh, i'm so excited it's a bizarre topic and some people may not be necessarily interested in it but the goal of course is to to look at this part of our culture this weird part involving men's and colorful tights beating the crap out of each other with preordained finishes to their their matches basically a, a mock combat sport that is one part reality show, uh, one part comic book. It's the weirdest thing that I think exists in our culture and exists as a billion dollar industry. I cannot think of a weirder thing. And you would be surprised how much the subculture that gravitates towards professional wrestling looks a lot like the geek community and how much of an overlap there is. Our panel this next time will be joined, of course, by the G. Gordon Liddy to my Richard Nixon, Casey Doran, <laughs> along with Paul Rue, who is my tag team partner over on my comic book podcast, Mike and Paul Save the Universe, and Living After Faith's Rich Lyons. I hope you'll join us. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Until next time. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Special effects are just a tool, a means of telling a story. People have a tendency to confuse them as an end to themselves. Uh, a special effect without a story is a pretty boring thing.